I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, March 21st, 2023, the 790th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So Donald Trump is now in handcuffs. Just kidding. It hasn't happened. Probably won't happen. Fox News last night reported on all of this. Trump probe law enforcement don't expect arraignment until next week virtual option not considered. 
Law enforcement officials met behind closed doors Monday to discuss the logistics of arraigning former President Donald Trump following his possible indictment over hush money payments made on his behalf during the 2016 presidential campaign. A law enforcement source told Fox News Monday that the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and different branches of law enforcement discussed the logistics of closing down streets and putting lights up with generators, extra barriers and extra police. The source said law enforcement does not expect the former president to be arraigned until next week as the Manhattan grand jury, which has been meeting secretly to hear evidence for weeks, has another witness on Wednesday. A virtual option was apparently ruled out as the D.A. is opposed to it. However, another source familiar with the discussions regarding the handling of a possible Trump indictment said that a virtual arraignment for the former president was never seriously considered. The source told Fox News that law enforcement is concerned about safety. If the former president does come up to Manhattan, there will be a major police presence and the area will get shut down. Trump has called on his supporters to protest ahead of a possible indictment. So whatever was potentially going to happen today doesn't sound like it's going to happen. It would be an absolute shock at this point if Donald Trump was indicted or arrested today. I'm still of the mind that it's not going to happen in general, but maybe it will. Maybe the optics are necessary and maybe we'll get to that point. But it sounds like it's not going to be today. Apparently, they have another brand new surprise witness on Wednesday that's going to change everything. And maybe this new narrative approach will have people unable to turn away from the mainstream media for another week as they anticipate the moment where the walls have finally closed in on Donald Trump. But apparently it's not today. So Robert Costello, the attorney, was on Tucker Carlson last night talking about how he went and spoke to the grand jury in Manhattan yesterday for a couple of hours. He said, it was clear to me the Manhattan grand jury did not want to get to the truth. On Tucker Carlson last night, he said, I just spent two hours or so testifying before the grand jury in downtown Manhattan, and I got my point across. Although it was clear to me that the Manhattan DA's office did not want to get to the truth, I needed to explain that a little bit. I called them up after I saw Michael Cohen on TV stating things that he said he was going to tell the grand jury and had told the grand jury that were contrary to what he told us when we first represented him in April of 2018. So I'm sitting at home watching these lies and I said, I've got to do something about it. I don't represent Donald Trump, but I do stand for justice. And I think I have a legal obligation to inform both sides. So that's what I did. And he went on and said, And I told them and told the grand jury today, I was deputy chief of the criminal division of the U.S. attorneys for the Southern District. I said I wouldn't touch a witness like Michael Cohen for any amount of money. You simply cannot rely upon this guy. And Costello went on to describe Michael Cohen's state of mind about this whole thing. At the time when Costello was representing him, he described Michael Cohen as suicidal, would rather kill himself than go to prison and was prepared to say and do anything they asked of him in order to avoid the worst possible outcomes for himself. So whatever nonsense case they had at the beginning seems to be falling apart even further. Now, again, that doesn't mean they're not going to 
release this indictment and attempt to arrest Trump. They might well do that. It just means that everything underlying that, the reality of the situation is that there's nothing there. And this will be just like the Mueller investigation, impeachment one, impeachment two, the January 6th committee, all of it based on lies, all of it for the public show to display to the world that Donald Trump is the stupid, angry, evil, dishonest man that the media has portrayed him to be for the last nearly eight years now. And so, as we discussed on the podcast yesterday, a lot of the conversation has shifted to Ron DeSantis's response when asked in what seems like a setup question about a potential Trump extradition from Florida. And a lot of people were dissatisfied with DeSantis's response. The people in the DeSantis corner said that Ron handled it so well. Former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis said Ron was in boss mode like he couldn't have done any better. He read his prepared statement prepared by his advisors and controllers, as well as anyone could ever read a prepared statement. He gave Joe Biden lessons in reading someone else's words and congratulations to Ron. And again, I'm not a Ron hater. I think that all of this just might as well be fake, and maybe it is. But what's not fake is the public reaction to it and all of the people coming out to support Ron at all costs in all scenarios. And they do that by going after Donald Trump, trying to destroy Donald Trump and to demoralize MAGA. We're now in the fifth month of this process playing out in public. All it took was Donald Trump saying to sanctimonious in early November, and all of these people have come out of the woodwork. And every now and then, some new ones jump on board. And what we have is this massive anti-Trump effort from people who are ostensibly on the right, supporting Ron DeSantis on behalf of the regime. There's been plenty written about Christina Pushaw and the team she put together to support Ron by going after Trump. And I've talked at length about the DeSantis simps. It's obviously some sort of coordinated effort, funded or not. We can't know that right now. Of course, they all deny it. We're talking about, you know, people like Kurt Schlichter and John Cardillo and Pedro Gonzalez and Matthew Tiermond, all the Daily Wire guys, the National Review, the Jeb people, the Paul Ryan people, Fox News, the entire conservative media establishment, conservative in quotes, is all lined up behind Ron DeSantis, pushing Ron DeSantis to run. Again, I'm not sure if this is all fake. I don't think that Ron is ultimately going to run. And in a couple of months, when we know that for sure, if he doesn't run, that's going to be hilarious. And I want to talk in a second about what I think is going on with these people. But before that, let's talk about what this overall effort is. I just discussed this a little earlier on Badlands Daily. I was sitting in for John this morning. But what we're seeing is a collection of candidates being promoted as Trump challengers in the Republican Party, and they all kind of have their own little niches. Ron DeSantis is basically Trump light. -like. 
he's portrayed as Trump without all the things that establishment conservatives hate about Donald Trump. First and foremost, he's not actively trying to take down the regime. He's just working around the edges to make it look like he is. That's why he's constantly focused on the woke stuff, because that's the issue, as we discussed last week, that establishment conservatives can go hard on without really upsetting establishment Democrats, because everyone in the establishment, all the wannabe elites, they understand that the position on the right, the anti-woke position actually does represent virtually everyone. Maybe the woke stuff on the left is a five or 10% of the population issue that they actually really care about it and promote it. They believe in it and think it's right. They want it to spread. But that is mostly a factor of infiltration. It's in the universities. Therefore, it gets out and it goes into the public. And I'm not saying it's not effective. The woke stuff does matter. Talked about this a bunch of times. It's just not the most important thing at all. You solve elections, you solve the woke stuff. You solve elections, you solve everything else. The elections are the issue. Donald Trump is the one going after the regime. Ron DeSantis isn't. So the regime wins in any scenario that isn't Trump. That's why people are only Trump. It's not because it's a cult. It's not because they're in love with Donald Trump and that they think that everything he says is the greatest thing anyone's ever said. It's because they understand Trump is going after the regime and that's why the regime hates him. Now, the regime is not totally clueless. They understand that Donald Trump is extremely popular maybe the most popular politician in all of history. And that is why they've spent the last eight years trying to attack and destroy him and destroy and demoralize his supporters and literally ruin their lives. They brought in the pandemic so that they could get Donald Trump out of office. Nearly everything they've done for the last eight years has been specifically an anti-Trump effort. You don't need to do all that. You don't need to censor everyone if Donald Trump simply isn't popular. If it's just 30% of the Republican Party and the Republican Party is only 35% of the country or 30% of the country with Democrats being 30 and independents being 40. If that was the case, then Donald Trump only represents 10 or 15, maybe 20% of the entire country. And then you can simply ignore him. You don't have to attack him and attack his supporters. That would be utterly insane. Why waste all the time and the energy? You could focus on bringing people to your point of view because they would all be rejecting Trump with you. And that right there is a winning coalition. But they don't have that coalition because Donald Trump is very, very popular. And MAGA is a massive majority. So what we have is Ron DeSantis, Trump light talks kind of like Trump talks about most of the issues Trump talks about many of them way later, because what is he going to do? Stick his neck out? Of course not. Didn't stick his neck out on Ukraine. He got in trouble for not supporting Ukraine enough last week, even though that's the first time he's gone against the Ukraine thing openly in a year. That's not leadership. And again, if DeSantis is simply playing a role in letting this play out so that all of the establishment can be exposed in the process. Good on Ron. 
But what he's not doing is leading a movement. That is just a factually true statement. There is no Ron DeSantis movement except on Twitter and in the central narrative. And again, there's a lot of people still locked into the central narrative. I'm not saying these people don't exist. I'm just saying it's not a real movement because it's not a real movement. MAGA is a real movement. But DeSantis is sold as a Trump ally, as Trump light. He's got the hand movements. He's got the whole thing. So DeSantis is like the knockoff Trump, the one that the establishment can get behind. Well, who else do we have out there? We have Vivek Ramaswamy out there. He wants to unify the country. He's going to be just like the Barack Obama version of Trump light. Hey, he's a person of color. He's young. He knows how to speak to the hip young crowd because that's what people like. They like being spoken to the way they like hearing things. And that's why they hate Donald Trump. Is it childish and moronic? Obviously, but they don't care about the truth. And they've proven that over and over and over again. But he says some Trumpy things. He even says that he says some Trumpy things because he wants to associate with the whole Trump thing a little bit, but without being anti-Trump, he wants to be a unifier, not a divider. So he's the Barack Obama version of Trump light. Then you've got Nikki Haley. She's the Kamala Harris version of Trump light, which is probably why she was propped up as a rising star in the Republican Party in the first place. Well, hey, if we have to play the we need a woman to lead game, Nikki Haley. If we have to play the person of color game, Nikki Haley, she's certainly not going to offend the Republican establishment, but she's also not going to separate herself from Donald Trump too much. I mean, she was the U.N. ambassador under Donald Trump, so she's Trump ish a little bit in her own way. She's Trump ish enough to say that she's not a Democrat to people who are Democrats. If you wanted Kamala Harris, but you've realized that Democrat party politics are wrong in every way imaginable, Nikki Haley's your gal. And since all three of them have basically face planted, including Ron, who's plummeting in the polls against Donald Trump. And to be clear, there is no race there. Not only is Ron not running, but even while not running, he's losing. So there's no movement behind the Trump version of Trump light. There's no movement behind the Barack Obama version of Trump light. There's no movement behind the Kamala Harris version of Trump light. So what is the GOP establishment donor class going to try next? Well, they're going to try the Mitt Romney version of Trump light. And who's that? Well, it's Glenn Youngkin. We are in the days of Glenn now. Can't you feel how professional things are becoming. And now you might say Donald Trump has endorsed some of these people. He's put Nikki Haley in his administration. He had Mike Pompeo in his administration. Mike Pence was his vice president. You can go down the list. Chris Christie was on his transition committee and Chris Christie is still pretending to run for president. So why would all of these people that Donald Trump once supported be so anti-Trump now, and if they were regime the whole time, why did Donald Trump ever endorse them in the first place and surround himself with these people? Well, if you're Donald Trump 
and you know what the effort is going to be. You understand that you are popular, that you have the majority of the country on your side, but they hate you and want to take you out. Well, what is the smartest thing for the enemy to do in that situation? Present someone who is like Trump, who can attract the Trump voter, but is nonetheless not Trump and is part of the regime so that they are still under control and that they will advance the regime's agenda, no matter what marketing spin they put on it to convince the country to be on their side. Now, let's focus in on Glenn a little bit. You might remember if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while before Glenn was elected in the fall of 2021, I said a couple weeks prior I think Glenn Youngkin is going to win in a rigged election 51-49 because the regime's number one priority here is to convince voters that the elections are not rigged. So you give a Republican sweep in Virginia and everybody believes that the elections are just fine and that it's just Donald Trump who's toxic for Republicans keeps everybody in the Republican and Democrat paradigm rather than understanding that it's the uniparty against the people. It's the global regime versus sovereign nations and sovereign individuals. You keep them in that old paradigm. You explain that Republicans really can win, even in a very blue state like Virginia. And the whole election fraud thing goes away. You've got the regime's choice and Glenn Youngkin in there. The Democrats ran Terry McAuliffe. He is just an ancient Democrat party hack and criminal. And they line him up so that he can lose. Same thing they did with Charlie Crist against Ron DeSantis in Florida, by the way. And what was the result of Glenn Youngkin's race? 50.6% to 48.6%. That's about as close to 51.49 as you can get. And what did they tell us afterward? Well, the elections obviously can't be stolen or Glenn Youngkin would have lost to Terry McAuliffe. How did I know that in advance? Well, all you have to think about is what the regime wants. If you understand that the regime controls the elections, the best outcome is not just to fill up the country with Democrats. It's to fill up the country with uniparty candidates that the public will accept and then follow. So if you're Donald Trump in that situation and you know that the regime is going to have the Republican win, what do you do? Well, you endorse that person so that you can attach yourself to the win and then see how that person reacts. Glenn Youngkin never really embraced that endorsement and Donald Trump never really spoke too much of it ever again. People said that that's because Glenn Youngkin knew that Trump was toxic and didn't want to turn off those voters in the middle. And why did they say that? Well, because that's the narrative that supports what they were doing. And what did we see in the midterms? Consider DeSantis, consider a number of the other races. I talked about it a bit yesterday. Donald Trump was, if memory serves, 232 and 20. That was his record in endorsements in these midterms that he and many other people knew would be stolen. His record of endorsements makes it very hard for anybody to credibly and plausibly say that Donald Trump is responsible for the disappointing midterm results. 
but they went and played out that narrative regardless. And that is something that DeSantis simps have hung their hats on ever since this whole thing broke out at the beginning of last November. They also hold on to the fact that our elections are very safe and very secure. And the proof of that is that Republicans win so long as they don't embrace Donald Trump, you know, like DeSantis and Brian Kemp and Greg Abbott and people like that. Now, the thing is, once Donald Trump has endorsed these people, if they don't embrace Donald Trump and then they end up going after Donald Trump or after Donald Trump supporters or don't do anything that promotes the MAGA agenda, then how do we see these people? We see them as clearly not MAGA. These people are not America first or they're too weak and too stupid to actually have success promoting an America first agenda. And regardless, we don't want them. Donald Trump's endorsement highlights that for us. And that's why it's so effective. That's why he continues to do it. If Donald Trump hadn't endorsed DeSantis and DeSantis had barely beaten the gay method who was his opponent in 2018, then this entire DeSantis narrative would have a completely different tenor. The conversation would center around the old paradigm issues. We would be talking about the differences in their policies as if that's what actually matters. All that matters is whether or not they're taking on the regime and they're committed to restoring America as a sovereign nation by removing that regime. That's all that actually matters. And the fact that we're now discussing Ron DeSantis's disloyalty, that we can see what's going on here very, very clearly. That's what allows their move with the Trump light candidate to fail so spectacularly in public. And just a word on these supporters, because, you know, I deal with these people online. I think about this quite a bit, and I think that it illustrates an important characteristic of the remaining never Trump people who will still tell you that they are conservative and they just don't want to vote for Donald Trump. They don't want to support Trump. They think Trump's going to lose. And they might have even voted for Trump in 2020 and 2016. They're just establishment Republicans that don't want to deal with the social consequences of it. They're okay with saying, well, if it's down to Trump and Biden, I'm going to vote for Trump. If it's down to Trump and Hillary, I'm going to vote for Trump. But if you put Trump up against Ron DeSantis, who's the hero of everything, the most perfect Republican candidate who's ever existed. Oh, well, then I am totally anti-Trump and I hate Trump supporters. The truth is they've been anti-Trump and hated Trump supporters the entire time. But nonetheless, their social incentives don't require them to support Biden or Hillary over Trump because they're just doing what a normal Republican would do. What they're trying to avoid at all costs is being publicly pro Trump because they don't want to deal with the incentive and punishment structure that the party of false decorum sets up around Donald Trump. They also don't want to break out of their old thought paradigms. They don't want to wake up. There are plenty of people who are ostensibly on the right, plenty of Republicans who are no more awake than establishment Democrats. They're very educated. They're very serious intellectuals. They're wannabe elites. They are establishment. They are two sides of the same coin. 
Now, here's the funny thing. They've essentially been asleep the entire time. They've been wrong about virtually everything the entire time, but they've only been wrong relative to people who were actually right. They're not wrong at all relative to people who were even more wrong. You see, I hope that makes sense. Think about it as a continuum all the way right versus all the way wrong. No one's all the way right. Lots of people are all the way wrong because if you're in the false reality, almost everything is going to be wrong by an objective empirical reality standard. Consider, was COVID ever a very deadly pandemic? The answer is no, but to everyone in the establishment and on the left, the answer is yes, but people who were less scared of it were right relative to the people that were most scared of it. Think about that with lockdowns. Many people realize immediately that lockdowns would be destroying societies around the world. Some people didn't. They told us that it was going to be very important to lock down and we really needed to be careful about this very deadly pandemic. Some people still want to be locked down now. Talking about the Mike Cernoviches of the world, the Daily Wire people, all of these establishment conservatives went along with the wrong decision, just not as much as the most wrong people. So in their circles, the people who create opinions that they care about, they're still on the mostly right side of things. When it comes to the elections and election fraud, they say Trump lost. They have to say Trump lost because if they admit that Trump's election was stolen, then they're basically committed to the position that Trump has to win because otherwise they are just helping to cement the injustice. And some of them are fine to do that, by the way, because they're liars and frauds and they hate America ultimately. But when you're talking about election fraud, there are people out there who really believe that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes. Then there's this set of people in the center right establishment who will say, well, yes, there were election problems, but they stole the election legally. Or yes, there are election problems, but what we need to do is get Republicans elected so that they can change the election laws in order to fix those elections. And that makes sense if you're still stuck in that Democrat Republican paradigm. Now, those people aren't actually correct about the situation in any way, but they are correct relative to the people who are more wrong than them. And considering that the opinions of Trump and MAGA were censored from the public conversation for two years, they have maintained their position as the most correct people in those circles. They actually believe that they've been right the whole time about all of this because they judge their own correctness relative to the people who were most wrong. They don't even consider the people who were censored and banned from the Internet because they believe we're all mouth breathing rubes with no education and nothing to contribute to the conversation. These people believe they have been right the entire time. Now, I was discussing this a little bit on the Devolution Power Hour on Saturday night, but you think about all these critical issues that we have dealt with over the years that require individual decisions at each and every point. We have to discern right from wrong over and over and over again on whether COVID is dangerous, on lockdowns, on masks, on social distancing on child masking, on school closures, 
on whether or not to be afraid of variants, on whether or not a vaccine is necessary, on whether or not the vaccine is safe and effective. And that's just on COVID. You can do the same thing with mail-in ballots and the election fraud, the very violent insurrection, immigration, inflation, Ukraine. You go on and on and on down through this list. These people are right relative to the most wrong people, but they have been wrong at the critical decision point every single time where we have been right. And this is not about specific dates or specific details. We speculate. We consider possible options. If we present five options and one of them is correct, then we're wrong about the other four. That's fine. These people are always wrong about all five. Because they are operating in a false reality and they don't know what the decision points are because all they're intending to do is be right relative to the people who are most wrong. Because they don't know that there was an entire other realm of possible decisions to have made at each and every one of those points. They don't understand that there were people who were actually right at each and every one of these decision points. Did you get any of those things wrong? Lockdowns, masks, social distancing, child masking, school closures, mail-in ballots, election fraud, the insurrection, immigration, inflation, Ukraine, Afghanistan. Were you wrong about any of those? I bet you were not. But these guys were because they were trying to have a very nuanced conversation about an underlying issue that was itself a complete and total fiction. They were having the wrong conversation the entire time. Nonetheless, they believe they were right the entire time relative to the people who were most wrong. So let's say there were 30 critical decision points like this or 50 or choose a number. Maybe it was a thousand. Maybe it was 10,000, right? And so if you want to still be right throughout that entire time, you've got to be very, very accurate at each one of those decision points. And it's not about getting every detail right. It's being on the right side of the issue. And we have managed to do that virtually every time. I would put our record, me, my audience, my partners at Badlands, attentive MAGA people in general, we've been right about all or virtually all of those critical decision points. These people that we're up against now believe they were right about all of the same decisions while being wrong and eventually ending up at our position just way, way too late. And some of them don't even get all the way there. Some of them still say, well, that decision was right at the time and it's just turned out wrong now. It's like the Scott Adams approach. Those people were right for the wrong reasons. I was wrong for the right reasons. You see, I was doing the real important thinking and analysis. And so my decision was based on very good information and the correct thought process. Whereas they just decided I hate the government. And so this is what's right. That is massive disrespect to everyone who is actually able to see these issues clearly, which should be obvious. But these guys think that because of the conversational environment they participate in, they've been right relative to the most wrong people the entire time. They think their record is as good as ours. In fact, they think that they are leading the public conversation and the public understanding of all these issues, even though you can see that they are provably responding to it 
if you're understanding how the information stream has flowed for these last three years. These people's thoughts are literally downstream from ours. That's why they are always behind on every single issue and still think that we're the stupid ones after learning what's right from us. And I'm not trying to sound cocky here. I don't think that we know everything and we are wrong plenty of times, but we're not relative to these guys. So understand the scenario we're talking about here. These people believe that they have been right the entire time, and they still imagine that we're in this Democrat-Republican paradigm where our elections are legitimate and all that matters is politics as it's been presented in the central narrative by the mainstream media for their entire lives. That thought paradigm and the idea that they've been right all along relative to the position they think they're actually battling against but are essentially actually supporting, which is the regime position, are leading them to ruin. They have hated Trump and hated his supporters the entire time because what they care most about is their feelings about what's happening and how they're able to communicate those feelings to other people in the party of false decorum so that they continue to look smart and wise and attentive and informed and very, very moral. And that has led them right into the Trump quicksand where they will remain. If Ron DeSantis doesn't run, and he may not, then these people have exposed themselves for who they are with no upside benefit whatsoever. They really believe that Ron DeSantis is going to run and that Ron DeSantis is going to win in an unrigged election, and then they will achieve power by having been right all along relative to the Democrat supporting versions of themselves, their own peer group. There's nothing these people want to do more than impress liberals with how smart and educated they are. And Ron DeSantis defeating Donald Trump is the thing that will prove they were right all along. And so they have once again reached a critical decision point, chosen the wrong way while believing it is 100% right relative to the Democrat version of them. And in the future, all they see is profit and power. If DeSantis doesn't run, they get absolutely nothing. They have been misinformed, clueless, and immoral the entire time, and they are just now being exposed. Because all their thoughts exist in totally obsolete and dead paradigms within the false reality. And what are they going to do at that point where they've said all these terrible things about Donald Trump and all his supporters? They'll have two choices. Same as everybody else. Admit you were wrong and try to do better or double down. And doubling down for them is basically going to be joining the new version of the Lincoln Project and ultimately supporting the Democrat candidate because that's the only thing that will seem consistent after they have spent a year or more by that point attacking Donald Trump and calling his supporters stupid. So changing subjects without a segue, this is from Reuters over the weekend. She says China's proposal on Ukraine reflects unity of global views. 
Chinese President Xi Jinping said on Monday that Beijing's proposal on how to solve the Ukraine crisis reflects global views and seeks to neutralize consequences, but acknowledged that the solutions are not easy. In an article published at the start of his visit to Moscow, the first by a world leader since the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. She also called for pragmatism on Ukraine. And by the way, that International Criminal Court warrant for the arrest of Vladimir Putin is even more ridiculous than the Manhattan DA's attempt to indict Donald Trump. There is nothing behind that. And Vladimir Putin doesn't care at all because quite clearly he does not recognize the authority of these global governing bodies at all. And he shouldn't because they are disintegrating in front of our eyes, largely due to Putin's actions in Ukraine. The China proposal, a 12 point paper released last month, represents, quote, as much as possible, the unity of the world community's views. She wrote in an article in Rossiskaya Gazeta, a daily newspaper published by the Russian government, according to Reuters translation from Russian. The document serves as a constructive factor in neutralizing the consequences of the crisis and promoting a political settlement. Complex problems do not have simple solutions, she said. She has been seeking to present China as a global peacemaker and project it as a responsible great power. China has publicly remained neutral in the Ukraine conflict while criticizing Western sanctions against Russia and reaffirming its close ties with Moscow. The United States and NATO have recently accused China of considering supplying arms to Russia and warned Beijing against such a move. China has dismissed the accusations. A peaceful resolution to the situation in Ukraine, she wrote, would also ensure the stability of global production and supply chains. He called for a rational way out of the crisis, which would be found, quote, if everyone is guided by the concept of common, comprehensive, joint and sustainable security and continue dialogue and consultations in an equal, prudent and pragmatic manner. She said that his trip to Russia is aimed at strengthening the friendship between the two countries, an all-encompassing partnership and strategic interaction in a world threatened by, quote, acts of hegemony, despotism, and bullying. There is no universal model of government, and there is no world order where the decisive word belongs to a single country, she wrote. Global solidarity and peace without splits and upheavals, is in the common interests of all mankind. And so he is speaking directly about the emergence of the multipolar world order, which is essentially to say no world order. The world just is, and sovereign countries make the decisions that sovereign countries make, guided by their self-interest, and that includes things like free trade and national security and staying out of other countries' affairs. When he discusses one country making decisions for the rest of the world, he's talking about the United States, but the bigger picture is that he's talking about the global regime, the liberal world order, as our leaders continue to call it. So Xi Jinping, on behalf of China, is trying to find peace in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but that's not good enough for the regime. They have called this 
proposed peace and attempt to distract. This is from February 24th, so almost a month ago, Politico, U.S. dismisses China's Ukraine peace proposal as an attempt to distract. U.S. officials are scoffing at Beijing's much-anticipated Ukraine peace proposal and urging the world not to get distracted from the imminent threat of China supplying lethal weapons to Russia. China's 12-point position on the political settlement of the Ukraine crisis, published Thursday, asserts vague support for sovereignty, ceasing hostilities, and resuming peace talks without specific proposals on achieving those goals. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told ABC News on Friday that it showed China trying to draw the world's eyes away from its support of Russian President Vladimir Putin. China's been trying to have it both ways. It's on the one hand trying to present itself publicly as neutral in seeking peace, while at the same time it is talking up Russia's false narrative about the war, Blinken said. There are 12 points in the Chinese plan. If they were serious about the first one, sovereignty, then this war could end tomorrow. And the article goes on. I'd encourage you to read it if you like. This was Blinken yesterday, though. And a ceasefire now without a durable solution would allow President Putin to rest and refit his troops and then restart the war at a time more advantageous to Russia. The world should not be fooled by any tactical move by Russia, uh, supported by China or any other country, to freeze the war on its own terms. Such a move would violate the UN Charter and delay, uh, defy, excuse me, the will of 141 countries who have condemned Russia's war in the United Nations General Assembly. So the completely corrupt Secretary of State for the illegitimate administration believes the war must go on. We can't just accept their peace deal because all that would be is a chance for them to build up their army even further. (laughs) It's unbelievable. But this is what's necessary for the regime. They can't lose Ukraine. Ukraine is one of their strongholds. It's one of the most important places ever to them. It's like they have some sort of long history in Ukraine with all of these Nazis and whatnot. And of course, that's exactly what's happening. Blinken released this statement yesterday. Additional U.S. military assistance for Ukraine. This week, as Russia's unconscionable war of aggression against Ukraine continues at great human cost, we are again reminded of the boundless courage and steadfast resolve of the Ukrainian people and the strong support for Ukraine across the international community. Today, pursuant to a delegation of authority from President Biden, I am authorizing our 34th drawdown of U.S. arms and equipment for Ukraine valued at $350 million. This military assistance package includes more ammunition for U.S. provided HIMARS and howitzers that Ukraine is using to defend itself, as well as ammunition for Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, harm missiles, anti-tank weapons, riverine boats, and other equipment. We applaud the more than 50 countries that have come together to provide support for Ukraine as it defends its sovereignty and territorial integrity. Russia alone could end its war today. Until Russia does, we will stand united with Ukraine for as long as it takes. So Joe Biden, who very likely doesn't have the authority to keep sending American weapons and money to Ukraine in the first place has delegated that authority to the illegitimate regime secretary of state so that he can do it. 
And apparently we will just never stop sending them money at the rate of about $2 billion a week. Clearly, we must not need that money here. We are more than happy to fight until the last Ukrainian. Sure, Russia and China are offering peace, but we can't trust them. So the only solution is more war. Not that we're actually in the war, because, of course, we're not in the war. We're just, you know, supporting a democratic nation who has eliminated opposition political parties and tried to shut down churches and stuff. But still very democratic. Yes, we overthrew their government in 2014 and installed a puppet candidate and their elections are nonsense. And now there is a comedic actor there pretending to be president. But it's a very democratic nation. And yeah, he's the one who removed opposition parties and shut down the churches, but democratic nation, you see, and we have to protect their territorial integrity and their sovereignty because you see the international community drew these borders and we made a bunch of promises, but we broke all those promises and we actually started an ethnic civil war against Russian speaking people, people of Slavic ethnicity in the Eastern portion of Ukraine. And that's been going on for, you know, nine years. And Vladimir Putin did come in to stop that whole thing because we weren't going to stop it. You know, peace, not on our agenda. You know, that's not part of what this whole thing is. And we're just going to have to have more war until the war is won on our terms, even though we're not in the war. I promise you all we're not in the war. There's no what American boots on the ground there. I mean, not like formally. Sure, there are American mercenaries and, you know, our other stuff that's there. And yes, we're sharing intelligence and helping them target Russian military installations and Russian leaders. And we're blowing up bridges and the Nord Stream, but we're not involved in the war. We're just giving them money and weapons and all this other stuff. It's not our fight. But even though it's not our fight, we have to make sure there is no peace whatsoever if it's on Russia's or China's terms. And if they speak for a big portion of the global community, they certainly don't speak for the UN and the UN is the authoritative voice of the international community, you see? And so the international community says we need more war there. And if we have to fight till the very last Ukrainian and have the entire global regime destroyed in Ukraine, well, I guess that's just what it's going to take. But maybe, maybe, maybe. We can just nuke them all. Does anybody support that yet? Because that's what we're trying for. And let's talk about this escalation of weaponry for just a moment. The UK Parliament has a questions and statements section on their website. And Disclose pointed this out this morning. A question from Lord Hilton to ask his majesty's government whether any of the ammunition currently being supplied to Ukraine contains depleted uranium. Baroness Goldie provided the answer. Alongside our granting of a squadron of Challenger 2 main battle tanks to Ukraine, we will be providing ammunition, including armor-piercing rounds, which contain depleted uranium. Such rounds are highly effective in defeating modern tanks and armored vehicles. Well, that's interesting. What's up with depleted uranium? Well, this is an article published by Harvard. The headline is depleted uranium, devastated health, military operations and environmental injustice in the Middle East from late 2021. War tactics are developed without any consideration for the environment, said Othman 
Al-Ani, a manager at the Middle Eastern Immigrant and Refugee Alliance. Such is the case for depleted uranium, a byproduct of natural uranium enrichment. The United States and other militaries use depleted uranium to make ammunition and tank armor. Depleted uranium is very dense, so it can easily penetrate armored vehicles during conflict. It is also fairly inexpensive, which means that countries can purchase and use large quantities without breaking the bank. However, we should not passively accept these justifications for using depleted uranium. It can pose extremely harmful environmental and health risks for the communities that live close to war zones, meaning that depleted uranium can be seen as an environmental justice issue. The United States and other countries perpetuate imperialism by deploying depleted uranium without fully considering its long-term impact on local communities. Going forward, contaminated areas must be cleaned alongside stronger research on depleted uranium's potential health effects. Militaries should not use depleted uranium if research shows that it harms human health. This kind of rigorous scrutiny must be extended to all weapons with prohibitions on military technology that causes environmental justice concerns. So you see, they're in a catch-22, no matter how you chalk it up. And you can research depleted uranium. There are a lot of articles like this, but apparently that only matters when they don't need it for their own goals. What does environmental justice matter while you're trying to save the sovereign borders of Ukraine? But that's not all. And we have our own problems here in America. This is from Politico today. GOP lawmakers demand Biden send banned cluster munitions to Ukraine. And if you recall, cluster munitions were what Putin was being accused of using in destroying those schools and maternity hospitals almost a year ago now. In fact, they were part of the justification for saying that Putin has committed war crimes. Four top Senate and House Republicans are demanding that the Biden administration send cluster munitions to Ukraine, a weapon that Kiev has long sought to blunt Russian numerical superiority on the battlefield, but the U.S. has refused to export. The U.S. has denied requests to send the munitions to Ukraine since the start of the war a year ago, keeping with Washington's aversion to firing the artillery-fired bomblets since American forces last used them during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. As the savage fighting around Bakhmut grinds on, and with Ukrainian forces outnumbered across the southern and eastern fronts, the lawmakers argue that it's time to give the Ukrainians the weapon, which the Russians have been using regularly since their invasion 13 months ago. Or so we've been told. The four Republicans, by the way, are Jim Risch, Roger Wicker, Michael McCall, and Mike Rogers. You might remember Michael McCall is one of the biggest warmongers in Congress, absolute neocon through and through. Mike Rogers was the man who seemed to be threatening to fight Matt Gates during the vote on who the Speaker of the House would be. And Roger Wicker is the man who about a year ago suggested on Fox News that we should leave open the option of a preemptive first strike nuclear attack. So the servants of the regime's military industrial complex wants to begin using these weapons against the Russians, 
even though basically all of society decided that these weapons should never, ever be used based on the collateral damage they cause. This is from CNET last year. The headline is cluster bombs, Russia accused of using banned munitions every day. What are cluster bombs launched from the ground or dropped from the air? Cluster bombs are a type of explosive that detonates in flight and releases dozens or even hundreds of submunitions over a wide swath. And we talked about this uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that these little bomblets would not go off and then kids would find them and play with them and then they would blow the kids up. This was what happened in the Middle East. A single cluster bomb attack can quote, saturate an area up to the size of several football fields, according to the Cluster Munition Coalition, which campaigns against their use. That makes them the weapon of choice for forces looking to inflict damage as widely as possible. While many cluster bombs are designed to kill personnel and destroy vehicles, some are intended to take out power lines or disperse landmines or chemical weapons. Why are cluster munitions so dangerous? Cluster munitions are incredibly indiscriminate in their targeting, often maiming or killing civilians. Often the submunitions don't explode on impact, posing a threat long after hostilities have ceased. According to the International Red Cross, cluster munitions can have a dud rate of up to 40%. More than 1,200 Kuwaitis have been killed by cluster munitions since the end of the first Gulf War 30 years ago. In Vietnam, Hundreds of civilians are wounded or killed every year by cluster bombs left behind by U.S. and Viet Cong forces in the 1970s. The bombs are banned by an international treaty signed by dozens of countries. Though neither Russia nor Ukraine is among them, using cluster munitions on civilians is considered a war crime by the International Criminal Court. And keep that in mind for one second. Is Russia using cluster bombs in Ukraine? Humanitarian groups were the first to accuse Russia of using cluster bombs in its assault on Russia, an allegation supported by NATO's secretary general. So that's our proof. Human Rights Watch says it has verified photographs submitted by hospital staff and posted to social media that show the nose cone and antenna of a 9N123 cluster munition warhead delivered by a 9M79 series Tochka ballistic missile. Such warheads contain 50 submunitions, Human Rights Watch reported, each of which contains 3.1 pounds of explosives and shatters into approximately 316 uniform fragments. Amnesty International shared drone footage. It says shows evidence of cluster munition damage on more than a half dozen spots around a kindergarten in Oktirka, including on the building's roof and sidewalks. The strike, quote, may constitute a war crime, Amnesty International said in a statement. On Friday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said officials, quote, have seen the use of cluster bombs and we have seen reports of use of other types of weapons that would be in violation of international law. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, told the U.S. last week that video footage shows Russian forces moving exceptionally lethal weaponry into Ukraine. Very professional statement. That includes cluster munitions and vacuum bombs, the use of which 
directed against civilians is banned under the Geneva Conventions, Thomas Greenfield added. So we have the International Criminal Court putting out a warrant for Putin's arrest for war crimes. The International Criminal Court says using cluster munitions is a war crime. Our U.N. ambassador says that they are banned under the Geneva Conventions. And NATO's secretary general says that they would be in violation of international law. But this was all a year ago. You see, now these are necessary in order to defend democracy. And we have four Republicans stepping up to defend democracy and calling for the use of weapons that were banned under international law a year ago. And wait, oh yeah, they still are. But don't worry, everybody. It's okay. It's justified now because we're defending democracy and Ukraine's sovereign borders. And we're going to come back to those sovereign borders in just a second. But this is also worth mentioning. This is from today, a statement from the Jewish Institute for National Security of America, JINSA. Open letter from U.S. military leaders on arming Israel to prevent a nuclear Iran. And isn't that interesting? A week after China facilitates peace talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is extraordinarily important for the stability of that region. Now we have the neocons in the military industrial complex asking us to further arm Israel. Isn't it interesting what these regime members will do to protect regime strongholds and proxy states? And just one more along those lines before we talk about Russia's sovereign borders. This is from the conservative treehouse on Sunday. Quiet part out loud. Polish ambassador warns if Ukraine not successful NATO will join war against Russia. Stunningly, the Polish ambassador to France, Jan Emmerich Rosiszewski, I think, said yesterday, either Ukraine will defend its independence today or we will be forced to enter into this conflict, sending a clear message that NATO will enter the war against Russia if Ukraine loses ground. Rosiszewski essentially said the quiet part out loud. And that public statement immediately caused the NATO allies to recoil. The EU NATO allies were not recoiling due to the substance of what he said, but rather because he said it publicly. Keep in mind, he has been Poland's ambassador to France for about a year. And before that, he was the chairman of the board of PKO Bank Polski, Poland's largest bank with a World Economic Forum linkage. The exact quote. Either Ukraine will defend its independence today or we will have to enter this conflict because our main values, which were the basis of our civilization and our culture, will be threatened. Therefore, we will have no choice but to enter the conflict. The immediately triggered retreat by the EU is here and he links to their response. However, this statement happened on the same day Politico reported an article with the headline, NATO is racing to arm its Russian borders. Can it find the weapons? And a quote from that article, military leaders this spring will submit 
updated regional defense plans intended to help redefine how the alliance protects its one billion citizens. The numbers will be large, with officials floating the idea of up to 300,000 NATO forces needed to help make the new model work. That means lots of coordinating and cajoling. So that's Politico, back to conservative treehouse. NATO wants to put 300,000 troops on Russia's border, and yet they simultaneously pretend not to want an expanded war against Russia. Put these data points together and what clarifies is the intent of the Western NATO alliance to increase the opportunity for expanded war, then overlay the Western banking crisis and the issues with the intended Western outcome of a digital currency to support the larger World Economic Forum agenda. What starts becoming clear is not only the positioning for an expanded war, but the motive to do so. It all tracks neatly into place. The WEF agenda is to advance crisis and position the governmental actors to doing the bidding of the WEF corporations that run them. This is why the same map that shows the Western countries supporting the Build Back Better climate change energy policy goals is the exact same overlay map of Western countries who triggered sanctions against Russia, which is the exact same overlay map of Western countries that are now positioned with a central bank solution to a national banking crisis. It's all connected to the same exact motives and intents. And he lists some of those collapse energy development, stop oil, coal, and natural gas production, create crisis, trigger supply side, energy driven global inflation amid Western nations. Crisis ensues. Use Western nations, central banks to raise rates, shrink economies to meet lower scale of energy production crisis solution, raise interest rates to cause regional and national banks to collapse, create crisis, central banks step in to mitigate and nationalize collate with fewer big banks crisis, introduce central bank digital currency crisis solution, impose sanctions against Russia, cleave globe based on energy production, create crisis. Create two economic models from energy collapse. Crisis ensues. Provoke war against Russia. Crisis solution. Western globalism, it's all connected. And of course, he's exactly right. This is what we've been talking about for years on this podcast. And if you are not tuned in to all of this, which should be by now very obvious, well, then you're still asleep. And you will be left arguing about insignificant political issues and the nuance of those complete and total fictions, clueless to what is actually taking place in the world. Which brings us to Ukraine's very sovereign borders. This is from The Hill on Sunday. Putin visits occupied city of Mariupol. Russian President Vladimir Putin visited the occupied Ukrainian port city of Mariupol on Sunday following a trip over the weekend to Crimea that marked the nine-year anniversary of Moscow's illegal annexation of the peninsula. Putin's surprise visit to Mariupol, which was reported by Russian state news, was his first to the territory, which his military has occupied since September. The visit also marked a show of defiance from Putin, whose visits to Crimea and Mariupol come after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for him on war crime charges. 
A United Nations report released last week concluded that the Russian military had likely committed war crimes and crimes against humanity during its war in Ukraine. The ICC warrant accused Putin of a war crime for the deportation of hundreds of children from Ukraine. While Putin has not commented on the charges, the Kremlin said it does not recognize the jurisdiction of the court, meaning the accusations are null and void. Mariupol fell violently to Russian forces at the beginning of the war after Ukrainian troops fought back advances. A bombing of a theater in the city, which was housing displaced families, killed hundreds. Russian news said on Sunday that Putin arrived in the city by helicopter and then drove himself around some memorial sites. Putin's trip also comes before a planned visit to Moscow by Chinese President Xi Jinping this week, expected to boost Russia's diplomatic standing. The Chinese leader's move has raised concerns in the West about the tightening of relationships between Moscow and Beijing. U.S. officials in the past month have warned China against providing Russia with lethal aid to help in its war in Ukraine after reports surfaced that Xi was considering the move. So far, China has refused to denounce the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but has criticized Western sanctions. Now, what the Hill leaves out and the rest of Western media ignores is that that's just part of Russia now. The Donetsk People's Republic is where Mariupol is, and they voted to become part of Russia last year. Russia recognized it as an independent republic even before the conflict began. And Putin visiting is clearly a public display to the world saying this is just ours now. And because that's not something that the central narrative is prepared to incorporate, they focus on the fact that Putin just got this arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court and he's still going there anyway. What a bad, bad man. This is just Putin rubbing their noses in it. The picture in the article from The Hill has Vladimir Putin with his men around him smiling and chatting with, apparently, citizens of Mariupol. So what is the picture of what's really going on here? Is it that the United States and the global community is going to supply all of this armament, these weapons, the ammunition, the money? so that Ukraine can reclaim the sovereignty of their country? Or is this the emergence of the multipolar world order that's supported by countries representing half of the world's population who don't seem to care one bit about any of these global governance bodies because they no longer have any power? Their power is not real. Their power requires everyone agreeing that they have the power. And there's no reason to believe things won't keep heading in that direction. So I guess we were right again. But the neocons, the Republican establishment, the Democrat establishment, they've all been wrong the whole time, which means they'll have to figure out some complicated and convoluted explanation for why they were right the whole time at least relative to the people who were most wrong. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me 
and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!